I invite you to remain standing for our scripture reading today, which comes out of Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 23. So let's hear the word of the Lord together. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses had said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that is going into him that can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, it's a blessing uh, to be able to come to your word today and to be reminded time and time again of your truth, of your goodness, of your grace. Father, we come uh, confessing that like the Pharisees so often, our hearts are far from you. And so, God, we pray that you would use these moments to draw our hearts to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, it is uh, officially the Christmas season because the Fountain Inn Christmas tree has been lit. The Rudolph run has been run by some of you. And it's Christmas. It's upon us. And uh, I will add my uh, thanks to all the people that made this room, this facility look like Christmas. It looks great and uh, brings a, a lot of smiles to see this uh, looking good. So thank you. Um, Christmas is here, and Christmas is about celebrating that Jesus has come here. That's the whole point, right? We celebrate the birth of this child that God himself has taken on flesh and come and has dwelt among us. And that is really good news. But if you think about it, God coming to earth didn't have to be good news. That could have been very bad news, right? God could have come just to judge us and to condemn us and wipe us out. He certainly had every right to do that. 
But Jesus coming as a baby, born in a stable, not even a real proper home, just to a lowly peasant family, that was all a a hint to us, wasn't it? It was a clue. It was a, a sign to us that this guy wasn't coming to just condemn us. He was coming humble. He was coming uh, sacrificially. And he was coming in grace and in love. Christmas is truly good news because Christ came with grace. That hint about Christ's coming as, as the Christ child, as a baby, was important for the rest of his life. And what we celebrate at Christmas is not just the fact that a baby came, but that that baby grew up and became a man, became Jesus who then took on our sins on the cross and died for us. So at Christmas, we are celebrating the baby, but we're also celebrating the man. We continue in the gospel this month to finish our, our, our fall series through the first half uh, of the gospel of Mark, because uh, at the end of this chapter, as I mentioned a minute ago, Peter, at the end of this section in chapter 8, Peter proclaims that this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, this is who they've been waiting on, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. And in Mark 7, a passage that we just read, that Savior we see in a very important way. Maybe it may be a little bit mysterious and strange in some of the, the, the phrases and things that happen here, but this is an important passage about Christ who is our great high priest. In Mark 7, 1 to 23, the word defiled or unclean is used seven times. And I've said many times that I like in the Bible when words are repeated because that helps my dense head like figure out, okay, I understand. If you say it to me seven times, I start to begin to understand what this passage is about. So it's about being defiled or unclean. From the very beginning, so in verse 2, it says, They saw some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed, To the very end of this, the very last verse, Jesus talks about things that defile a person. So from beginning to end, it's about what what does it mean to be unclean. And so the the laws of the Old Testament, if you go back through Leviticus and some of those harder books, talk a lot, like a whole lot, about being unclean and things that can make you unclean. And according to the Old Testament rituals and ceremonial laws, You could be unclean for all kinds of different reasons. Things like uh, touching anyone or anything that was dead or blood, any kind of sickness, skin disease, even a a woman's monthly menstruation cycle, eating unclean foods, like anything from a pig. There were all kinds of reasons in the Old Testament ritual, ceremonial laws that somebody could be declared unclean. And if they were unclean, they had to go through a certain washing, a ceremonial washing washing before they could enter back into the temple or the synagogue. That is, they had to, to come into God's presence. They had to be washed. They had to be cleansed. And the purpose of all of that had nothing to do with uh, germs. I think it's probably worth saying in the middle of a pandemic that the ancient world had, knew nothing about microbiology and, you know, microorganisms uh, like bacteria and viruses. This wasn't about health or whatever like that. This was about saying, you know, in a very tangible, physical way, God is holy. God is perfect and righteous, and we are not. And, and we, in order to come into His presence, we, we have to be cleansed. There's something about us that has to be washed away for us to really be able to come into God's presence. 
And so all those laws, and you, you read through them. Maybe you don't start in the new year reading through the, the Old Testament or something like that. You can get bogged down. It can be so labor-intensive labor just to get through these books because it's all pointing to the fact that we need to be cleansed. There is something in us that we need to be, needs to be washed away. So in the Old Testament and in Jesus' day, there are very specific traditions and laws and commandments about how to go about that process. Now, of course, today we, we don't do those kinds of things. We don't uh, have ways of becoming unclean. You know, we don't, you, you, you are welcome to eat bacon on Sunday morning and then come here without having showered in between. Like you can, you can do these. This isn't uh, applied to us in the same way. So we might look back at this idea of talking about unclean and say, well, that doesn't apply to us. That was just the, the ancient world. We can just kind of skip over this one and get to, you know, something else, right? Well, yes and no. The, the laws don't, the same, they don't apply to us the same way. We'll get to that. But it points to a truth that absolutely applies to us. Because you see, the, the uh, ritual way of becoming unclean may have passed away. But deep inside of all of us, we know there's something that needs to be cleansed. There is something in us that needs to be washed if we're going to come into the presence of the Holy God. There was a, a writer uh, back in the middle of the 1900s named Franz Kafka uh, who wrote some really weird things that I, you may have had to read in school at some point. But um, he was not a Christian, and he wrote a, a novel called The Trial about an average guy named Joseph. And this guy wakes up one day, and he's arrested out of his own home. And he's taken into custody. And the strange thing about the arrest is that he's not told the crime that he's being accused of. He's not told why he was arrested. He goes uh, from in front of one group and he asks, you know, why, why am I here? What's going on? And the answer he gets is just simply somebody, one of the guards says, I, I can't say I'm under orders from my supervisor. He thinks that's strange, but he gets transferred and moved around. And, and this process keeps lingering on and nobody ever tells him, what he's been accused of. But the longer he's uh, arrested, he begins to think back over his life. And, and it, previously, he thought he came in, you know, being, say, hey, I, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. I don't know what the charge is, but I'm innocent. But the longer he's arrested, he starts to think about things he's done. He starts to process, well, I didn't, that wasn't that bad, was it? Or, or was it? And he begins to think that actually maybe he is guilty and he should have been arrested. And he hasn't even been told what he was arrested for. Kafka was not a Christian, but I think that, that sentiment is in all of us. That points to a deeper truth in us. That if we can be still long enough and think back on our own lives, we're, we're not perfect. We're not perfectly clean. We, we can't stand in front of God's court and say, I'm innocent. I didn't do it. We may be able to get by in the laws of our land for a while, but before God, we all know Deep down, we are guilty. In our passage, Mark 7, it's, it's really a dispute between the Pharisees and Jesus about what makes a person unclean. But if you read back through that passage, you'll notice something, that, you'll notice something they didn't argue about. They didn't argue about whether or not we were clean. They, they all agreed about whether or not we're clean. They just disagreed about how we become unclean. And so it's worth us starting there today. Everyone is unclean. Everyone is unclean. And no, not just in the ancient way of rituals and 
certain things we've touched or, or been around that were ceremonially unclean. But in a much deeper and more significant way, we are unclean. The Pharisees argue that the disciples were unclean because they didn't follow the traditions. Verse 5, it says, Why do your disciples walk, not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Jesus disagrees with that, that premise, but he makes it a lot harder, not easier. He says in verse 20, What comes out of a man is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man. He's going to give a list and say, that, that's what defiles you. The Pharisees want to say things you touch makes you unclean. Jesus says your own heart makes you unclean. But they both agree, we are unclean. Listen to the, to the way Jesus describes our uncleanness. And it's easy to, to read a list like this and kind of skim over it, and you see the, the big ones that you haven't done, and so you think, oh, you know, don't apply to me. But slow down through this list for just a second, and I think all of us are guilty, at least of number one, because number one is, it says, from, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. <laughs> just thinking bad things. I don't know if anybody gets off the hook there. All of us have done that. Sexual morality is the second thing listed, and that's, the, that's the, the Bible's general way of talking about any kind of lust or, or sexual relationship outside of marriage. Then it lists theft, murder, adultery, and coveting. Those are the ninth, sixth, seventh, and tenth commandments. Wickedness, deceit. Deceit? Anybody ever deceived anybody? Probably. Sensuality, envy, slanders, or speaking evil of anybody, God or another person. Pride is on this list. That surely has to include everybody at some point. Because in some ways, pride is the most foundational sin, thinking we are better than somebody else. Foolishness, that is morally thinking we, we, are, we are ignoring God's laws. Uh, and so Jesus summarizes in verse 23, he says, All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. You see, the Pharisees didn't understand. They thought they could just not touch certain things and wash themselves in certain ways, and they would be okay. They would be clean. But Jesus says, no, 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 it's much harder than that. We are, in fact, all unclean because the uncleanness comes from our own heart. Jeremiah talks about that in Jeremiah 17 when he says that the, the wickedness, the evilness of our hearts, who can comprehend? Re reading a list like this clarifies that, that we, we, what we probably already knew, we, we are unclean. All of us make this list. We feel it. We know it. We have this deep sense that we aren't clean. And I think that shows up in our lives in a, a handful of different ways. There are a variety of ways that we feel that uncleanness. For some people, especially if you've, you've got some things in your past that you're not proud of, that you remember and you think of, some people, we, we carry around a sense of guilt, this uncleanness that comes from just feeling guilty about something we have done. Maybe there's something specific in your past or a lifestyle or something else that as much as you try to just move on, you, you can't. And you just feel this kind of low-hanging cloud that's just always over your head or, or a, a, a burden like something you're carrying on your back and you just can't seem to get rid of it. You're just carrying around this guilt. There's a famous play, Macbeth, where Lady Macbeth convinces her husband to kill a man so that he can become king. But Lady Macbeth, the woman, is the one who goes to the crime scene right after her husband commits the murder and smears around the blood with her hands so that it makes it look like somebody else committed the murder. Much, much later, Lady Macbeth is waking, woken, woken up in the middle of the night. She, she's sleepwalking. And somebody overhears her and she's 
wringing her hands as she's sleepwalking. She's dreaming and she's looking at her hands and she feels like there's blood on her hands that she just can't get off. And she says, out darn spot. She doesn't say that, but you know, that's what I'm going to tell you she said. She said, out spot. She, she can't get the blood off her hands, but it's, it's not really there. It's just that she's carrying this guilt that's weighing so heavy on her that she feels like there's this blood on her hands that she can't get rid of. Many people carry around guilt. For others, it's not a, a specific guilt. It's that there's just kind of this overwhelming feeling of not being good enough. Not being good enough. That shows up in a lot of different ways. Maybe you, we try to work hard to get ahead and achieve better, only to be knocked down by failures or falling into the same struggle, struggles and sins. You feel like you're past it and you fall once again. Maybe the, there aren't. Um, you feel like whatever you do, it just never measures up. It's never good enough. You're never strong enough. You're never smart enough. You're never rich enough. You're never pretty enough. You just feel like I'm just never enough. We imagine there's going to be this, this place we get to in life. You know, it's the, the next level of whatever. Job, relationship, status, family, financial, whatever. You, you picture this. If once I get to this level, then that, that's the mark Well, I'll, I'll have peace. And yet you get there and the, the peace never comes because you just never have this sense of satisfaction. We live so afraid of letting anybody down because if we let somebody down and it says that I, I'm not good enough to, 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 to satisfy, to make them happy. And so we live this constant fear of dis- being a uh, disappointment because disappointing somebody feels like a, a form of death to us. Sometimes that sense of feeling inadequate shows up and we feel like we're we're ugly, we're unlovable, we're unworthy, we're not valuable. And so if anybody comes along and says, hey, you're, you're beautiful and you're wonderful, we, we would do anything for them. And if they're you know, a righteous person, then maybe that works out. But there's a lot of danger because that person has melt a, a, a place that only God can meet. And so we, we would do anything for them. And that could be abusive and dangerous. Maybe you could see that uh, all, all, all of those things can be true in different forms or fashions where we're, we're striving to be good enough. And there's just this sense, I'm just, I'm just not there. I'm unclean. Maybe it's guilt. Maybe it's not feeling good enough. But we all have this sense of being unclean. The Pharisees had their ideas about being unclean. Jesus has much better ideas. But they agree, we are all unclean. Sin is not a popular idea in the world today. We don't like to talk about that. It's not a very popular thing. We live in a day where it says everything's relative, truth's relative, you know, uh, right and wrong's relative. You know, you can do whatever you want, but not to God. Truth is truth, sin is sin. But even in an age where most people don't want to talk about sin, we have this overwhelming sense that there's something not right in this world, and there's something not right in my own heart. The disagreement in our passage comes in how to overcome that, how to become clean. If we agree everybody is unclean, everybody has fallen, everybody has sinned, then how do we become clean? We may read this and look at the Pharisees and say, that's ridiculous, you know, I would never go into that trap. But I think the same temptation they face is the one that we face. We may laugh at the silliness of it, but deep in our lives, there's, a, 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 I think, a, de- a default position that the Pharisees are facing that we too face. We struggle to learn the same lesson they did, and that's this. We can't make ourselves clean from the outside in. We can't make ourselves clean 
from the outside in. There, there's not something we can do on, on the outside that changes who we are on the inside. What the Pharisees were trying to do is to make themselves clean by what they do with their lives. Now, I'm sure that didn't start with bad intentions, but they, they have totally missed the point of the clean laws in the Old Testament. They totally missed the point. At the beginning, I'm sure it seems like the religious leaders, what they were trying to do was, okay, if God commands this rule, I'm going to add a bunch of other rules around it as a buffer so I don't get close to touching that law. That seems like, okay, not a bad idea. But along the way, they missed the point of the rules themselves. You see, every other religion in the world is based basically around this. And I may have said this before. It's worth repeating. Every other religion is about, I'm good, therefore, God accepts me. If I'm good, if I do what I'm supposed to do, I am good in God's eyes. My action, God's response. That's how almost every religion in the world works. And the problem is we import that into Christianity. Our world says that your status, the, just the general culture, not even religion says, you are, your, your worth is defined by your actions. If you do good, then you are good. Your actions come first and then the response. That's how... Everything else goes, but not with Jesus. With Christianity, from the very beginning, it has always been the other way around. God loves you, and therefore, He wants you to obey. His love comes first. You say, what about the Old Testament? What about all those laws? How'd that all work? Well, take the Ten Commandments. It doesn't come any stronger on commandments than the Ten, the most famous ones, right? Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 is well after God has delivered His people out of Egypt. And even the commandments themselves in Exodus 20, they start with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. That is, I'm God, he's saying, I'm God, and I saved you. Therefore, here's my laws. Don't have any other gods before me. God's love, God's salvation comes first, and it always has, then obedience in response to that salvation. We are never saved in order to be, we, we, are ne we never obey in order to be saved. We are always saved, and therefore we want to obey. Why would that be? I mean, take any relationship. Any relationship works this way, right? In your marriage, if you're married, you said, I do on a certain day. And we were all clueless on that day, right? We didn't know what we were getting into. We didn't know what was coming. You, as much as you may have known that person, you, you hadn't seen decades of their lives, of them proving their faithfulness to you through thick and thin because you hadn't lived that yet. You hadn't seen the trials. You didn't know how people were going to respond. You don't choose to marry somebody because they have measured up to perfection and you know they're going to be, they're going to be perfect, right? Nobody would ever get married if that was the case, right? No, you, you get married, you say, I do. And from that day forward, you make decisions about your relationship because you, you want to honor that person. You want to love them. You want to obey the things that, that make them happy. You want to please them because you are in relationship with them. So it is with God. He said, I do. He chose you. And now he says, I want you to be in relationship with me. In Exodus 19, uh, the chapter before the Ten Commandments, he says, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So he's telling them, I saved you. I brought you out of Egypt, like, like putting you on an eagle and flying you out of there, right? And he says, now, therefore, if you will obey, you shall be my treasured possession. And that's a picture of this beautiful, like, that God would treasure us. How is that possible? He wants us to walk with Him in relationship. From the beginning, 
even the Old Testament laws have always been about. God saved us. Now walk in relationship with Him. And the Pharisees miss it. They miss it completely. They think that if they can just obey the traditions and the laws, they can be right on the outside. But the problem is you can be perfect on the outside, at least seemingly, and on the inside be completely dead. And that's where the Pharisees were. All the rules are external. Obeying the rules, you can do that without ever touching your heart. And Jesus says, no, that's not how you are made clean. Jesus proved that they had missed the point of law by, by pointing to a specific example. They had missed the way the law was intended to work. Everybody agrees. Honor your father and mother. That's, of course, that's what, something we should do, right? It's the fifth commandment. But the religious leaders had found a, a loophole. They had found a way around that because they didn't want to have to use their money to honor their parents when they get old. You've worked hard for this, and if they need something, I don't want to take care of them. Ah, well, we're supposed to love God first, right? So they came with this idea. They said, all right, if you take some of your property or, or something that you own and you say, uh, this belongs to God, I'm dedicating this to God, then you, if, if it comes a time when your parents need something, you can say, I would help you, but see this land, I, it's, it's all dedicated to God, so I can't touch it, I can't, I can't help you. Sorry, wish you well. That, they use the traditions and try to use, they, they break in the scripture. They're going against God's words. You see that their heart hadn't been changed. They're not trying to obey the heart of the law. They're not actually trying to follow God. They're still selfish and prideful and arrogant and wanting to do what they want to do. They've used traditions to go against God's law itself, showing that they have missed the point. They've completely missed the point. They don't understand it has always been about a relationship, and they miss it. Jesus calls them out on that, quoting Isaiah with this. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Wow. They honor me with their lips. They say the right things. These are church people. They have, they have good deeds. They look nice. Their lips are saying the right things. But their hearts, their hearts are far from me. Jesus has a word for that, a very strong word. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites. That word comes from a word that means actor. And as Brad Garrison reminded me a couple months ago, that means that this, an, an actor is somebody uh, who puts on a mask. Puts on a mask, right? So the idea is that the mask looks right. It looks like it's supposed to do. But underneath the mask, it's not the right person at all. Jesus is saying that wearing a mask, acting a part, playing a role, doesn't, doesn't change you. You can't go from the outside in. It has to go the other way around. But it doesn't stop us from trying, right? It doesn't stop us from trying. As silly as it seems, when I say that about the Pharisees, I mean, you think, of course, of course this isn't going to work, Pharisees. We try this over and over again. We try to deal with our own sense of guilt or our own sense of not feeling good enough with all kinds of strategies from the outside in. We come up with all kinds of things. Sometimes we try to wear the mask of working really hard. We think, hey, if I prove myself... If, if I achieve in this world, whatever your definition of achieving is, if I get success, whatever success means, then I have proved I'm not guilty. I'm good enough. I, I made it. And we try to get there. But if our cleanness is dependent on working hard, there's always one more level. There's always something more to gain. We'll never satisfy that, that desire. It won't, it won't work. 
Sometimes we try to wear the mask of taking control. We think of power. Hey, if I can, if I can push others down, if I can call the shots, then, then I'm in charge and I'm okay and I'll be around. Now, power can look good, can look like strong leadership, but it can still be a way of wearing a mask that just says I'm trying to hide the things that I, I'm not proud of. Or that power can look evil, like abuse, all kinds of evil things. Sometimes we wear the mask of making excuses, playing a victim, or pushing the blame. And it may very well be that we've, you've been wronged. Many of us have. That's, that's, that happens, and that's not okay. But if we only live in the excuses, we'll, we'll never find healing, and we'll never be able to move forward. Sometimes we wear the mask of just entertainment, pleasure, fun, distraction. I, it's easier not to think about the heavy things of the world and, and how our condition is before God and guilt and sin and all these. If I, if I just jump to the next football game, to the next TV show, then if I just stay busy and seek things that are fun, then I don't have to think about it. And that's how we try to wear a mask and avoid it. I think one of the most common mistakes, that w- the, one of the most common masks we wear is the same one the Pharisees were trying to wear, and that's the mask of trying to be a good person, just trying to be a good person. We can call that moralism, trying to be moral. That's, that seems like an, a good thing, right? Not, I don't want you to be a bad person, so, you know, try to be a good person. But the problem comes when we put our hope in that. We put our hope in trying to be a good person. We try to do good things, and we think as long as we're decent people, then we are okay. We're clean. We're not unclean. We, we go to church, at least sometimes, you know, we feed our kids, we pay the bills, we go to work, we don't cuss, at least not around you know, some people. So we're good, right? We're good people. But if we take off the mask, where, where's your heart? Just doing good things doesn't mean your heart, anything has changed about your heart. Would Jesus be able to say the same thing to us that he said to the Pharisees, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. I thought about making that our memory verse for December, but I felt it was kind of a downer for, for Christmas, you know. But it's still one I think that's worth memorizing and, and pondering. You honor me, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. When we go through life just trying to be a good person, but not truly in relationship with God, then we're practicing moralism. It's just legalism. It's just trying to do good things in order to be perceived as, okay, I'm good, I'm fine. To be a disciple, to be a Christ follower, is to have a great treasure in Jesus himself. To love him above all else. Good deeds will follow, but they are not the reason why we have a relationship with him. We know him, therefore we obey him. If our goal is just being a good person by the world's standards, you you could probably do that without ever knowing Jesus at all. And God is saying, that's the danger. That's the danger. The most important thing is knowing Jesus, not just living in a certain way. We, can, we cannot truly clean up our, our, ourselves from the outside in. It just doesn't work. If we're going to try to be a better person apart from Christ, then, then our hearts haven't changed and we're still unclean. Can I say that one of the, one of the most uh, challenging and convicting places this shows up is in parenting? In parenting, how we raise our kids. And even if you're not raising kids currently or, or haven't before or, or, or you're kind of past the young child age, I think still the illustration of thinking about how we raise kids helps us see 
our own hearts. Think about the way we raise our kids. Somewhere deep in us, our default mode of raising kids is that our goal, like we we may not say this, but somewhere deep in us, our goal is to have kids who would grow up, be good people, be decent members of society, who contribute to the world in a positive way. We think, hey, if I can just get my kids out of the house and paying their own bills and, and not like destroying the world, then I've, I've, I've done my job, right? And that, that feels like a, a good goal. You say, well, pastor, I mean, surely the opposite isn't our goal, right? You know, Yes, I agree. We, we, that is a, a good thing. But let me just challenge that as uh, if that's our number one goal, if that's our number one goal, then, then it could be devastating. It could be devastating. If we, if we raise kids whose idea uh, of success is just being a good person, we're putting them in danger. We're putting them in serious danger because you could be successful and not know Jesus. And then it's all for naught. Our kids can be good people, but if they don't have a walk with the Lord, then, then what's it for? What's it for? And the reason that's scary and even hard for me to say with young kids who I still don't, I mean, they're young, right? But I'm scared. You know why it's scary to me? I, I can't control that. I can't control the relationship with the Lord. I feel like I can control their behavior sometimes because I'm older than them. I can, right now, I can pick them up and move them, you know? And so the control of that feels good to me because I can stop, like eventually the tantrum, like I can just leave the room, right? But I can't, I can't change their hearts. And so it's scary to me to think about my ultimate goal. My ultimate goal is not to have good kids. My ultimate goal is to have kids who love Jesus above everything. That's the goal in parenting. That's what we really want. Yes, of course, we're going to teach them all kinds of good things and how to use tools and fix things on cars or whatever else. You know, we want to teach them lots of things. But the number one goal isn't be a good person. The number one goal is that Jesus is more valuable, more wonderful than anything else in this world. And if we trade them, we're in danger. We're in danger. It's scary because we, we can't control what they love. And so there is both some, some fear and some freedom there, isn't there, as parents? Because ultimately, we can do our best and all of us fail every single day, but ultimately, their hearts belong to God. So there's, there's some freedom there. We pray for our kids. If your kids are grown, you, you pray for them and say, God, if they, if they don't know you now, I want them to, to know you. That's what I want above everything else. The greatest thing you can do for them is pray for that. There's nothing better than you can do than pray for that because that's our number one goal, is that our kids would love Jesus. But if you are still raising kids, think about the way that we, we act, that we parent our kids. You know, we try all kinds of things toward the goal of just good behavior, right? We try punishment. You know, if you, if you, if you don't do this, or if you, if you keep doing this, if you, if you don't behave, then I'll take away, you know, TV, dessert, privilege, driving the car, whatever, you know? Punishment, we'll try that. Or we'll try reward. If you'll just do this, then I'll raise your allowance, I'll give you some extra this, extra candy, extra dessert. We'll try the reward side. Okay, that works. Maybe we try fear. You better do this or else. You know, you don't answer, you don't finish the fill in the blank, but just, or else, you know, just use fear. Guilt and shame. We try, you know, if, this just shows that you're good for nothing. Man, we can hurt our kids with just a few words. We can hurt our kids. If those are our primary tactics, you know what we're doing? We're saying, 
that my goal is really just to raise good kids. You can raise good kids who are Pharisees and just have outward things, but their hearts haven't changed. All right, if I've already come this far, can I take one step further on this one? Because it is December, all right? And if you don't have anything to throw at me, that's probably better, all right? But just hold on, just hold on. One of the most famous teachers of moralism in the entire world is a man who wears a red suit. This is just, as parents, I just want you to, I just plead that you would think this through as parents. What, what, what are we teaching our kids? What are we teaching our kids? Gifts, by their definition, are gifts. They are not wages that you earn. If we teach our kids, be good so you'll get presents, that's a wage. That's something you've earned. That is something that you're trying to say, if you did this, you get this. You, you know why God gives us gifts? It's not because we did something to earn it. The only thing we've ever earned is death. But God has given us so many good gifts. Gifts at Christmas are, are, are free. They're grace. They're not, they're not rewards for good behavior. But somewhere along the line, some clever parent, I'm convinced it was a parent, you know, thought, hey, if we give this guy in a red suit some of the attributes of God, like being all-knowing, you know, all see, sees everything, uh, he sees us when we're sleeping, knows when we're awake, knows we've been bad or good, so we're good, you know that song, right? If we give him some, 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 some divine powers, and today we use little elves to help with that, that sit on your shelf, right? Like that's how we figure that out. Because the kids are like, how do they see? Well, there's, you know, anyway. The whole premise on the whole thing is be good and you get things in return. It's, it's a wage. It's something you are earning. And, and if, if, if that's how your whole childhood was, then of course you're, you're raised with this idea that life works this way. If I act a certain way, I get certain things in return. But with God, He loved us, and then our actions follow. It's always the other way around. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the reward system doesn't work. It doesn't work. Laws don't change hearts. Grace does. Grace does. You know why you give your, your kids gifts at Christmas? You know this already. You're not rewarding. You give your kids gifts at Christmas because you love them, because they're your kids. Let that be enough. Let that be enough. The Pharisees think that, that cleansing comes by, by things we touch and we eat, things on the outside. But Jesus says it's, it's much deeper than that. It's our hearts. He says, verse 18 and 19, and this is almost graphic. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is it expelled? Like, you know what he's talking about here, right? Food comes in, it goes out. That's what he's saying. It goes right past your heart. It doesn't touch. And by heart, he means the, the core of who you are, your soul, your mind, your everything. That food doesn't touch. Outside doesn't touch your heart. It can't. The question is, what does? What touches your heart? And the answer is grace. Only grace. And he gives us an idea of that in verse 19. Mark almost never gives an editorial note, like a little sidebar on what Jesus is saying. But he does in verse 19. He says at the end of verse 19, Thus he declared all foods clean. Now what does he mean by that? Why is that significant? Did he just throw out all of the Old Testament stuff about the pork and you know, different things? Did he just throw it all out? Did he just abolish it and say, yeah, that was wrong? Well, no, because he just got onto the Pharisees for not taking the Scripture seriously. What he's doing here when he says, when he declared all foods clean, is he's saying all those Old Testament laws, 
have now been fulfilled. They've been completed. What was the point of them all along? All along, we said that the whole purpose of them was to tell us that God is holy and the only way we can come into His presence is if we have been cleansed, we have been washed. And so when Jesus declared all foods clean, what He's saying is, I have come and I am the one who cleanses you. Not the laws, not, not the, the, the food, not the things you touch. Jesus Himself is the way that we are cleansed. All along the clean laws, clean laws were saying, you've got to be made clean to come to God. And Jesus is now showing us that's exactly what He came to do. When Jesus declared all food, clean, all food clean, He was saying He has come, and all the Old Testament was pointing to His salvation. He's here. And for the first time ever, there was a man walking on the earth who was clean. Everybody else had been unclean, and everybody to follow would be unclean. But for the first time ever, there was somebody who is clean. And then he did the unimaginable. Jesus, who himself is clean, became unclean for us. On, a, on the middle of the night, he's arrested and taken before a judge. And for the first time, he should be clean, and yet he is declared guilty. And he is beaten and he's whipped and he bleeds. And he's got a crown of thorns and he's bleeding. You know what that means? That means he is unclean. His clothes are ripped. He is naked. He is unclean. He is put up on a cross and he is crucified. He is he's killed. He's dead. If touching a dead body is unclean, then certainly being a dead body is unclean. He's thrown into a tomb, the very definition of a room that would be unclean. Jesus, the perfect, only clean one, became unclean so that everybody who believed in Him would now become clean. That's what Jesus came to do. All the clean laws, all of it was pointing to this moment. Jesus declared, that stuff won't make you unclean. The world, your hearts, that's what's unclean. And I have come that you may be clean forever. What He was talking about, what He's proclaiming, is that He is the one who is the high priest, who comes before God on our behalf and says, I'll take their sin on me that they may be clean and come into your presence. God came to us. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And His death in our place is the only way our uncleanness, uncleanness can be made clean. You can't be made clean from the outside in. It has to go the other way around. Jesus alone can make us clean from the inside out. That's how we are made clean. When we see what Jesus did for us, that love, that grace, that gift we did not earn, it actually begins to change our heart. And to the degree which you see that love, then you want a relationship with Him and you want to follow Him. That free gift of grace is the only way we can be saved. And it's the only way we can be made clean. And once we've actually received it, it changes everything. My favorite of the Chronicles of Narnia books by C.S. Lewis is the third one, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in this uh, great, great story, there's a little boy named Eustace who is a total jerk. He's awful. He's annoying. He's pestering. He's selfish. He's arrogant. Everything he does is about himself. And he is kind of an, an unwilling participant on this major adventure, this major, major voyage with his cousins and a whole crew of people on a ship. And one of their adventures is they get to this island 
uh, after going through this major storm and all the crew, everybody is working to repair the ship and make it better. But Eustace, because he's arrogant and selfish and a jerk, goes off by himself to explore the island. And in doing so, he finds a, a dragon that has died. And so Eustace goes into the dragon's caves and, cave and finds this enormous mound of treasure, more gold and jewels than he can imagine. And he's laying there on top of it, just enjoying it, and so much fun that he falls asleep on top of this big pile of treasure. And when he wakes up, he feels a little funny, and after a little bit exploring, he realizes he has become the dragon. He now is the dragon that he saw pass away. And C.S. Lewis is making the point that now his heart is on the outside. He was all along a dragon on the inside, but now it's visible to everybody else. And at first, Eustace is scared, and then he kind of goes to enjoying it, you know, because he can fly and breathe fire. But the longer he does it, he realizes this is, this is just miserable. It's miserable. He, got, he can't talk. He can't have a communication with people. All, all of his dragon-like characteristics separate him from others. And they don't, he, he, he feels that separation now. And he's pained by it. And so he's longing to change. He's longing to change and he cannot change himself. He can't get rid. He can't find a way to stop being a dragon. But one night, there's somebody that comes outside and wakes him up, comes from outside, and it's a lion. It's Aslan. Aslan takes him to this pool, and he comes and he sees this pool, and Aslan, the lion, tells Eustace, the dragon, take off your skin and bathe yourself. And Eustace realizes, of course, of course, I, I, I shed my skin like a snake would. So he starts to, to rip his skin off, and he, he takes it off, and he can see a dragon suit on the ground. He looks down again, and he's, he's still a dragon. It was just one layer. So he tries again. He rips a whole other layer of skin off, and he talks about how much it hurts, and he, he lays it down, but he's still a dragon. He tries it three times, and he can't, he can't undragon himself. He's ripped away all he can, but he can't. And Aslan says, let, let me try and it says that he, he lifts his terrible paws and his claws. He says it goes so deep in him. He says it feels like he touched his very heart. And as Aslan rips away, finally the dragon's skin is ripped off. And Eustace jumps into the pool of water. And he says it hurts like crazy. But he looks down and realizes he's a boy. He's a boy. Eustace couldn't take off his own dragon skin. Somebody else had to come and free him from his unclean, nasty, gross self. And it took a claw going so deep that it went all the way to the heart. Because that's what makes us unclean. If you will let Jesus speak deep into your heart, it will change you forever, and it will make you clean.